I want to start today to look at uh, the gospel according to Mark, and one of the reasons I'm so um, nervous in my own self about it, I was up at uh, up early this morning, and I'm no wiser now than the early, I could have had a couple of extra hours in bed, I probably, with for all that I untangled uh, after I did get up, but when you're in student world, as I have been for a number of years, five, a length of a five-part series is about as long as you ever get, and I started in Mark in the last couple of weeks and I have no idea how long it's going to take or where it's going to go or how to even work that out because it's all new. So you'll need to bear with me as I try to untangle some of this stuff. Even the resources available to me are limited in that probably for the last three years or the last five years I've been more likely to be talking about rock music and faith than I have been about the gospel of Mark. And so therefore when I looked at my uh, shelves for that commentary that I might have been buying, all I got was Susie Quattro or The Beatles or Adam Ant or Led Zeppelin or whatever else. So bear with me. I've read a, a whole collection of things and rock music will come to bear upon that because that's the resources I have. And we want to look at this gospel and see what we might learn from this gospel for our own individual lives, but for us as a body of people trying our best to be Christ's disciples right here in the center of Belfast as we find ourselves. I could skirt over the facts. Maybe some people don't want that. Um, I find that I like to get on to uh, the meat of some things, but Mark's gospel, probably the earliest gospel in my research, heavy and all as it was, um, somewhere mid-50s AD, not very long after Jesus Um, had left his disciples to somewhere maybe 70 AD, uh, very early writing of this gospel. At a time when things weren't really written down, I discovered in my research, when a lot of things were much more oral in the passing on of tradition, here was Mark and other gospel writers who decided they would write some of this stuff down. Probably very few people argue that it's John Mark, mentioned eight times in the New Testament, uh, related to Barnabas, and colleague of Peter's, who probably was his main research for this particular um, gospel. I hadn't thought before, but it was written for Gentile readers, and this really intrigues me how even books of the Bible can take you off course. It's supposedly written particularly for the Romans who were action people, not wordy people. Now, you see, when there's a book in the Bible that's called Romans, that's the most wordy book of the Bible, I assumed all these years that the Romans were the real wordy ones. Uh, But apparently not. Apparently they want action, the Romans. And they really get it here. If you were following with Helen at all there in the reading, this is just bombardment after bombardment. Mark uses immediately 41 times in this gospel because it just goes wham. There's no let up. It's just action after action after action. I've read quite a number of Bible commentaries. I've read um, The Gospel According to the Sun by Norman Mailer. Interesting. If you haven't read that book, last night it was going for 1p on Amazon. Um, Some of it really intriguing, some of it you can leave down, but an insight I think in the baptism scene we're going to come to here that I was intrigued with. I also read the introduction to the gospel according to Mark by Nick Cave, who, for those uninitiated, um, is a rock musician. Quite an arty, gothic, uh, unique, eccentric 
talented musician, novelist, poet. And about, I don't know, is it 10 or 12 years ago, Canon Gate decided to bring out all of the books of the Bible individually. Did you ever think of the, Bible, the books of the Bible individually? Somebody apparently went into a shop and asked for the Song of Songs for, her, for his wife. Um, no idea. And um, he couldn't get it. He had to take the whole Bible. So he thought, oh, you have to take the whole Bible. Surely you should be able to buy the books of the Bible individually. So the Canon Gate brought out this series. They didn't do them all, now it has to be said. But uh, there was a period of time where if you walked into Waterstones, the Bible was right there in front of you. And what they did was they got famous people, novelists or artists, um, singers, to write introductions to these books. And they asked Nick Cave to write the introduction to the Gospel of Mark. And he loves the Gospel of Mark. He says, the go- Mark speaks with such breathless insistence, such impulsive narrative, uh, such impulsive nar- narrative intensity, that one is reminded of a child recounting some amazing tale, piling fact upon fact on top of each other as if the whole world depended on it. Which, of course, for Mark, it did. He goes on to say that it's an inflaming Christ inflames Christ's mission with a dazzling urgency. And that's true in these first verses because we find he says this is the beginning, then he goes into an Old Testament, not many Old Testament phrases in the Gospel according to Mark because it's for a Gentile readership, but he goes into an Old Testament um, reading and then he's into John the Baptist, then Jesus is there for his baptism, then he's off into the wilderness, then he's got the first disciples picked up by the side of the Galilean Sea, all in the first 20 verses of this fast and furious gospel. Um, It's about new beginnings. And no better is a new beginning than to speak about it on the 3rd of January with a baptism in the house. It's about new beginnings. And all of those things from the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right at the outset, to the baptism of Jesus, which in some way is a new beginning. Um, The baptism that John was having was certainly for a completely new beginning to the people, interestingly, of Judea and Jerusalem, the center of power. Uh, It's interesting, it's the people from Judea and Jerusalem that come out to John. There's not many coming down from Galilee in the north because they're half pagan at that stage of the deal, but who's the one that's going to come that's going to be more powerful than John for the baptism? Not the one from Jerusalem and Judea. We thought about this over the Christmas season, but the one from the margins. The one from Newhereville, up around Galilee, is the one who is going to come and be even more powerful than the baptism of John. Yes, I want to come as quickly as I can to this baptism scenario because it seems to me there's something in the middle of that that I want to concentrate ourselves on this morning and it's this moment we could look at um, the baptism of Jesus why did Jesus get baptized because he was sinless and I guess we can see it and rightfully as he talks about is is it Matthew's gospel where he talks about fulfilling all righteousness is it that he's already taken upon himself the sin of the world and that this baptism um three years perhaps before his actual crucifixion when uh, he does kill all of sin dead and rise to a new life is being symbolically dealt with here in the baptism in the Jordan, which has got all kinds of connotations as well because it's in the Jordan 
that the people of Israel come through to their new beginning in the promised land. There's all kinds of imagery going on here. And I'm sure there are people in the house who are better theologically to deal with that imagery than I just have in the last five or six minutes. But what I want to get to is the middle of this baptism, something happens that I think uh, might affect what goes on for the rest of the gospel. And that is this moment where in our reading today, we hear that the sky was torn open and we got a glimpse of heaven. Um, some of the commentators would say that there are three apocalyptic moments in the Gospel of Mark where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit meet up. This is one of them. There's another one further down in Mark chapter 8 or 9 at the Transfiguration. We'll come to that. And then later on, on the cross itself. But what we have here are these moments when heaven and earth are connected by the Trinity in ways that are not everyday ways and some of the commentators would call this an apocalyptic moment where heaven breaks into earth and of course when we hear about the sky being torn and the heavens being torn we are drawn back to I remember and his son is in the audience but I'll not name him by name but I remember this elder in first Antrim who used to pray every Friday morning uh, in our uh, prayer meeting God rend the heavens and come down It's what Isaiah talked about, that the heavens would be rended, torn in two, and that God would come down to live among his people. This Old Testament apocalyptic idea that in our ordinary everyday lives, suddenly we would get this breakthrough of heaven on earth. Is that what happened at that moment when Jesus comes out of the water? And yes, the Spirit descends on him and the Father says, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Tom Wright would say that all our baptisms, we should make sure we have that phrase for our children because so many children grow up without their parents telling them that they are well pleased. And that for children at baptism to hear that God is well pleased with them can change the spiritual health of the human being. But anyway, at this other moment, that's the identity of Christ being seen there. And we could go back again to Isaiah chapter 42 where it talks about the spirit being upon this messenger of God that's going to come. This moment of rend the heavens and come down, what might have happened? Well, in Norman Mailer's book, I think I wrote it down. It's a really fantastic little phrase. Norman Mailer, trying to do the gospel according to the sun in Christ's own, let me see if I can find it. Um, He has this wonderful bit where he says, uh, oh, I wish I could find this. Um, Hang on, you can see how good my notes are. That's Nick Cave again. No, I'm not going to find it. He talks about glimpsing the glory and that Jesus saw a million souls right there in that moment. And was it right in that moment? In this moment where the heavens were torn apart and where Jesus got to look into heaven and heaven got to look down into earth, where this connection was made that Jesus got the whole kingdom ministry that he was about to do. Now, We can debate, can't we, at what stage in his life that Jesus realized, I'm the Messiah. It's all right for us looking back, isn't it? Because we think, 
that baby, as soon as he was two, decided, oh, look at me, I'm the Messiah. Wouldn't it be a wee pain in the neck in the Sunday school, running around Nazareth, if he was running around saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah. Um, and for 30 years, in fact, that sounded very Monty Python just there in that moment, but uh, uh, forgive me for that. But in, in that, where was it that Jesus came to this understanding that he was the Son of God, that he was God become human, that he was going to be the one who had to be the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. Now, whatever we want to say about The Last Temptation of Christ, the movie, and if you listened to all the fuss back then and didn't watch it, oh, what you missed. I didn't watch it for 20 years or so, and then I did watch it, and what a challenge it was to faith. What an amazing movie it is as it tries to deal with Christ's temptation. What was Christ's temptation in the last temptation of Christ? It wasn't some hedonistic, promiscuous temptation like those who pick it outside movies said it was. The great temptation for Jesus was to live an ordinary family life. That was the temptation. I'll just settle down. I'll just be around. I'll have a good family. I'll marry Mary Magdalene. We'll have children. We'll just live around the place, and surely that, there's no harm in that, is there? That was his temptation. How many of us are tempted with the same temptation? We'll just settle down. We'll just move into the neighborhood, BT9 if we can, and we'll just have this lovely family life, and it'll all be nice. We'll be nice to your neighbors. We'll be nice to the people down the road. We'll be nice to everybody, including the devil. We'll just be nice. And we'll do no anybody any harm, including the devil. Because we're just living an ordinary life. This was the last temptation. Was Jesus going to go for his vocation? Or was Jesus going to settle for just a normal family life? Now, where does that throw us at the start of a new year with us in good family lives? It doesn't mean that we should break those families up and go in some crazy um, idea of whatever, but it does challenge us what we do with our families, what we do in family life, and what we do in our church and in our communities. Was this a moment for Jesus to realize, maybe I am the Messiah, or was he sure of it the whole way along? Whatever it was, and we can ask him no doubt someday, it will all be revealed to us someday, this was an important moment in the life of Jesus and his ministry. Because when he came out of the water, everything changed. He got this glimpse of the kingdom and he took off into the wilderness for temptation before he starts his ministry of bringing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. A glimpse of it, an imagining of it. Now Nick Cave, interestingly, and he would because he's the artist, comes back, not to this part of the gospel particularly, but he talks about how it's Jesus imagining an alternative kingdom that causes him all the grief that he gets in his life. In fact, Nick Cave, and I think he's right here, in Mark's gospel, there's an isolated Christ. Even the disciples seem to be very slow to get anything that he's trying to contribute. And Cave would say that the problem is that his disciples, the Pharisees, the powers that be, none of them can get it because Christ has seen something and is aware of something beyond 
What is the rational and the horizontal? He has had a glimpse of the vertical. And that changes everything that goes on. He can see behind things. He can see the reason for things. He can see the eternal in the moment. And what about us? As we come to the new year, a vision of the new year, are we looking to see something more? If we live in the horizontal, everything's going to seem meaningless, I guess. You could go back to Ecclesiastes. But if we could get the heavens rent for a moment and get a glimpse of how God sees his salvation plan, if we could get a glimpse of the eternal, would that not change everything about the year ahead? When I was younger, I thought I was being very spiritual, taking that baby around, and then somebody in the back row, I'll not say who, is, who he was, but his initials were Joe Carey, um, <laughs> looks up at me and says, another Arsenal fan. Well, that broke the spiritual mood for me, I have to say. <laughs> but when I was... Uh, <laughs> Well, sorry, Jim. Uh, when I was younger, I thought I was going to play for Northern Ireland and whoever. Actually, at the time, I thought I might want to play for Man United, but I caught myself on. No, I did. I caught myself on. Praise the Lord. And, um, uh, but I thought I was something good. And then one day, we went to um, a BB outing, and uh, the BB captain brought his son, who was in the Robins. Do you remember them? And uh, this wee guy who was half my size and a couple or three years younger than me, and I was only eight or nine, got out and he got the ball and we didn't see the ball for about 10 minutes. I had never seen genius quite like this. And at that moment as a nine-year-old, I just went, going to have to find another vacation because this is a footballer. And um, Stephen Penny played for Northern Ireland in the World Cup and I was actually speaking recently and he was there and I told one of these stories and he said to me after, he said, if you'd been my agent, I would have been a millionaire, he said. You thought I was far better than any of the managers I played under thought I was. But um, seeing Stephen changed my life. And I remember, uh, because I just knew, he's great, I'm average. And um, I remember about, oh, I don't know, many years after that, speaking in a little church in Bangor. It was a youth event. And, uh, and I was speaking to this youth group. And I don't know whether they were listening any more than, to be quite honest, I'm not sure whether you're listening at the minute or now. But I, I wasn't sure whether they were listening or not. But about three months later, I was back in Bangor in another church. And this girl came up to me and she said, Steve, do you remember that night you were in uh, um, Bangor? Uh, the, I can't even remember the name, Baptist Church. And uh, I said, oh, I do you remember that? And she said, well, that night I decided to commit my life to Jesus. I'd heard you three times that summer and you said the same thing all three times. Yes, you've got that one. And, um, and she says, but that night there was just something I just couldn't get away from. I'd been running away from God. And that night, and I said, oh, that night. Because what I was thinking about that night, the whole way through the talk was Stephen Penny was playing for Northern Ireland at Wembley. And I can't even remember the score now. Probably 1-0 to England. We probably outplayed them for 89 minutes and then something happened. But I remember thinking, playing at Wembley, newspapers the next day, on television, or then some little place in Bangor where nobody was paying much attention, and suddenly the eternal met earth and something changed. What are we investing our lives in? Now, I know you're not going to believe this, but when I was younger, there was one or two girls. Not at the same time, I have to add, but there was one or two girls. 
And one girl's mother was particularly excited that she was bringing a Presbyterian minister home for dinner. Really excited. She was telling the neighbors. And all was going really well until I appeared for dinner. (laughs) My hair was here. I probably hadn't shaved in a few days. There was probably a few holes in my jeans. I wasn't looking much like a Presbyterian ministry student. And within minutes, that relationship had no hope. Because that mother was sure that her daughter was not going to marry him. No. She was the wife of an elder. She was a good Christian lady. But she just couldn't see when she asked me, where do you want to be a minister? And I said, well, outer Mongolia if it happens, Cork and Ahad if it happens, wherever the Lord leads me. That wasn't what she wanted. She wanted to think Malone Road. She wanted to think Maryville Park. She wanted to think shirt and tie. She wanted to think short hair. And so the relationship, thankfully for Janice and I, I have to say, well done. I nearly mentioned her name there, but I better not. Not too far away, not too far away. Um, But at the moment, she wasn't looking at the eternal. In her perspective, it was about the materialistic safety and security of her children. Or a friend of some of us today, Glenda, who was our youth leader in First Antrim when I was there, and she went into hospital for a very minor operation. And John Dixon drew me aside one Wednesday night and said, did you hear that Glenda's been given three months to live? When I got myself back together in my own mind, I started to think as a young minister what it would be like to go and visit somebody who's 26 with all of life to live, who's just been given that news. And I remember bringing her the flowers from the youth group. And I set the flowers down. I can remember every step I took from getting out of the car to finding her ward. And I can remember coming around the corner and seeing her there. And she said to a nurse, nurse, more flowers for you. And I said, oh, well, Glenda, these flowers are for you. She says, no, no, if I die by the weekend, she's getting married, she's having my flowers. And I sat down as this girl ministered to me. Because they cried. Oh, they cried. But she said to me that day, and I'll never forget it. She said to me, Steve, if God is glorified in my living, may he be glorified. And if God is glorified in my dying, may he be glorified. And what is 60 years on earth when I know that I'm going to be with him forever? She lived for about three years, three and a half. And she ministered to everybody that met her. I can remember going and she made me a meal one night and uh, she was standing at, the, at the, the, the cooker and she was making sausages, not for me or her husband, for herself. And she wasn't allowed to eat. She wasn't allowed at that stage to eat anything that was solid. So she would chew the sausages and spit them out. And we were having this laugh at her and she was laughing so much about some of those things that were going on in her life that I didn't know how you would deal with. But she dealt with them because the skies had been ripped in two for her. And that she was seeing the horizontal in the light of the moment, uh, the eternal. She was seeing what was happening in her moment in the light of God's view of the whole thing eternally. As we go into this year, as a congregation and as individuals, I know for sure that we are going to laugh this year. We are going to have times this year when to be together as a family is going to be wonderful. 
But we're also going to be together this year and we're going to go through tragedy and we're going to go through sadness and we're going to go through sorrow. We're going to do all of these things together. And this is as good a community to do those things as I personally have ever found. I know I've only been with you a few weeks, but that's the truth of it. But we are going to have both those things. And we're going to try in the midst of those ordinary things of our lives to be a beacon of light to the world outside. We need a vision. We need to know what God's salvation plan is for these next number of years in this particular area of Belfast. And we need to get ourselves into moments where God has a chance of ripping open the sky for us so that we will see what it is that he wants us to do behind the ordinary every day. We need the prayer fellowship to grow in numbers. We need to be a people who pray in our house groups. We need to be a people that as we pray, we're aware that as soon as we say amen, we're going to get off our knees and help God answer the prayers and put through the vision that he's given us while we're doing that. We need to see the kingdom come in Fitzroy as it is in heaven. And I pray that as I, I think, only begin tomorrow morning, We've been emptying boxes. The boxes are empty. So tomorrow morning when I go into the study, I go into the study to start and strategize what to do with these strengths. Because we have lots of strengths. But can I tell us honestly as a community, I don't think we're playing to our strengths yet. And I long that we would just get a glimpse of heaven open. And the kingdom coming down and showing us what God could do with the strengths of this people if we listened, if we saw the vision, if we prayed and then got up off our knees to make ourselves available to the answer of those prayers. That's what happens just a few verses on. We'll come to it next week. Another new beginning. People just fishing. We'll probably come to it next week and realize... They never caught anything, at least in the biblical record, but they were fishing. And Jesus says to them, what did he say? Believe this? No. Sing this? No. Go there twice? Each week? No. He said those incredibly awkward words. Mess up your life words. Follow me. I've seen the vision. So follow me into the year that's ahead. Let's pray. God, give us a vision. Make us alert to it. Help us to listen for it. Help us to see beyond the horizontal. And may we not just sit here with strengths. May we play to those strengths for the glory of your name. May we follow you into the year that's ahead. In Christ's name, amen. The offering will be received.